pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. You are our rock, you are our redeemer. Amen. So after receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Outside of the room, utter darkness. Inside the room, astonishing light. John's gospel has made it clear from the start, in Jesus was light, and the light was the life of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In the passage we read yesterday about the grain of wheat that has to die in order to bring life, Jesus goes on to say, the light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness may not overtake you. Now the light sits at the center of the table, and the other characters in our tableau are marked by their distance from him, their distance from the light. As he so often does, St. John says to us, look at those disciples. Where are you in that picture? How close to the light? Closest to the light, of course, is the beloved disciple. Now, John never actually tells us who the beloved disciple is. Nevertheless, calling him the beloved disciple every time we mention him is awkward. Calling him in BD seems a little irreverent. So we'll call him John if we're Baptist and St. John if we're you. <laughs> the New Revised Standard Version says that St. John was reclining next to Jesus. But the authorized version is more interesting and actually more accurate. St. John is leaning on his bosom as close to the light as you can get. You remember St. John from high school. He is the student who sits in the front row because there is no more decorous way to get any closer to the teacher than that. Her hand is always the first one up when the teacher asks a question, and worst of all, she always answers correctly. The only thing that redeems such students from our eternal resentment is that when we can't understand exactly what it is the teacher said, they do very handily explain it to us. John is so close to the light that he reflects Jesus' own glory. More than any other disciple in this gospel, John seems like a natural saint. When people say him, they don't just say, good morning, John, from the start. I'll bet they say, good morning, St. John. William James distinguishes between believers who are once born and those who have to be born again, and John is once born. He gets it right from the start. John is a great inspiration to us, but not, I think, a very helpful example. Many years ago, I was on the same faculty as the extraordinarily prolific scholar and writer Martin E. Marty. One day, the dean of the school where we taught said offhandedly, but very wisely, we admire Marty, but we do not imitate him. No doubt, some of you have been saints from day one. No doubt, some of you lean on the bosom of our Lord with a constancy that is admirable. 
The rest of us admire you, but we are not able to imitate you. We are, says theologian Jean Outka, we are the disciples who follow Jesus at a distance. We're not so much like John. Most of the time, we're much more like Peter. Peter does not start out a saint, and he barely ends up as one. Some are born saints, some achieve sainthood, and some have sainthood thrust upon them. That's Peter. Sainthood is thrust upon him. If St. John is once born, St. Peter is twice born, or thrice, or more. Our Gospel reading makes this visible. St. John sits right up next to the light, entirely illumined by the Savior's aura. Peter is farther down the table, partly caught in darkness. He's not close enough to catch the Savior's every word, and so painfully, I suspect kind of resentfully, when he doesn't quite get what's going on, he has to ask, you know, you guessed it, St. John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to the beloved disciple to ask him just what Jesus was talking about. Right now, of course, Jesus is talking about Judas. Soon enough, after Judas has left the room to enter the darkness, Jesus will talk about Peter, too. Peter, halfway in the darkness, halfway in the light, will say, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus knows how much darkness still surrounds the disciple, and he says, Will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Which is just what Peter does. Maybe because he's afraid, maybe because he feels his own unworthiness, Peter will three times deny that he knows his Lord, and we know how the story ends. St. John, of course, standing right there underneath the cross next to Jesus' mother, St. John, receiving Christ's blessing, and Peter on Golgotha? Nowhere in sight. We know how the story ends, or almost ends, until the risen Lord, until the light of life comes back from the darkness of death and turns to Peter who three times has said just the wrong thing, and three times Jesus gives him the chance at last to say just the right thing. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. Think on your life. How often our discipleship is two steps forward and one step back. That's on our better days. Some days one step forward and two steps back. How often our anxiety or our selfishness or our cowardice cause us to avoid the Lord who calls us as his own. How often faith is fleeting and doubt seems here to stay. Think on Christ's life. Think on that persistent grace that confronts our every weakness and restores us from our deep timidity. Think on the love that will not let you go. St. John in the light, St. Peter in and out of the light. When our scene begins, 
when this story starts, Judas is not that far from the light. He's probably somewhere between Peter and John because he's close enough to take the bread that Jesus offers him. Who is Judas in this story? He is not, as some of the most frightening interpretation has insisted, he is not a symbol of the Jews. Every person at that table that night is a Jew. Judas no more, no less than any other. Judas is a symbol of something else. He is a symbol and a warning to the disciples who are with him and the disciples who come after him and a symbol and warning to us. He's a reminder that the worst sin is not the opposition of an enemy, but the betrayal of a friend. In his final awful act, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, darkness as close to light as breath itself, the brush of a kiss. Darkness does its worst in the name of love. Think on your life. Who hurt you most? Not the one who never gave a fig for you. That's little loss. But betrayal by someone you love? Darkness, visible. Think on your life. Whom have we hurt the most? Not the folk who simply passed untouched through our lives. The ones we love. The ones we betray. Oscar Wilde on the Ballad of Reading Jail. Each man, each man kills the one he loves. Well, maybe not kills. But each man hurts the one he loves, of course. Judas is there in the gospel as a warning that the darkness of betrayal threatens every soul, including our own. Judas is there in the gospel as a warning that we are all too prone to betray each other and we are all quicker than we will admit even to desert our Lord. Robert Grant, the distinguished New Testament scholar, once pointed out in a Holy Week sermon, that Christian piety is full of Good Friday songs and poems about how we crucified Jesus and how miserable we should feel about it. Grant said that after years of studying the New Testament, he had not found one verse that supported that pious sentiment that we are guilty of crucifying our Lord. And until this week, I thought that Grant was entirely right, and now I think he's only mostly right. The story of Judas is told in our Gospels, and it's told for our sake, to remind us that it's not so much Jesus' enemies who do, us in, who do him in, it's Jesus' friends. To remind us that when we who have loved him turn from him, that must be for him pain beyond measure. And when we who have been drawn to his light turn proudly away, that is darkness beyond words. So what hope is there for Judas? None at all, says St. Luke. Luke tells us that Judas bought a field with the money from the treachery, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. What hope is there for Judas? None at all, says St. Matthew. 
According to Matthew, full of guilt, Judas threw down the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor and went out and hanged himself. They can't quite get their story straight, but they are sure that Judas' end was very sad indeed. Maybe St. John really is the saintliest of them all. Or maybe he's just reticent. Because though he tells us that Judas walked out into the darkness, he does not tell us outright how Judas' story ends. St. John does say this one thing that puzzles us. Just before Judas went out into the darkness, he turned and received one last gift from his Lord. Jesus breaks the bread and dips it and gives the broken bread to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. And Judas goes out into the darkness, not entirely comfortless, but with the bread that's given him by Christ, who is the bread of life. He goes into the darkness, not entirely darkly, but with that small remnant of the light, the light that has been shed on him by Christ, who is the light of all the world. Judas goes out into the darkness, but in his guilty hand, he carries the bread, the body, the gift. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain, mine Mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe to me thy grace. To Christ be thanks and praise. Amen.